0: If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com.
1: Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised.
2: On a rainy night in September of 1946, Cora Rogers was going about her end-of-day duties. She worked alone, running a market and gas station in rural Greenleaf, Oregon. The lights went out inside much earlier than was usual, and a curious neighbor walked over to check on Cora, but she did not answer. The neighbor returned home, figuring she had closed up early and gone to bed. But she'd been killed in the night and lay undiscovered until the following morning. Though police had the statements of many witnesses from the night of the murder, and a description of the likely killer was broadcast and printed in newspapers, the man simply walked away from the crime along a rural strip of Highway Blacktop. He has never been identified, and the murder in Greenleaf remains unsolved. With the growing popularity of recreational road trips and the Pacific Northwest's bustling timber industry, the Greenleaf market was a lifeline on rural Highway 36 in the Oregon Coast Range. Located midway between coastal Florence and Eugene, the nearest big city inland to the east, there's almost nothing but trees and the road for a view. Driving from west to east, with Florence on the coast, you'd pass through Deadwood, Greenleaf, Triangle Lake, Blatchley, and then Eugene nearly 50 miles later. 30 miles inland from Florence, a place like the Greenleaf Market had to be a one-stop shop of sorts. It was the only establishment of its kind between Deadwood and the Blatchley area north, home of the area's post office. The market provided groceries, fishing licenses, bait, and camping goods. It had a soda counter, or a Coke bar, which is the human equivalent of a freestyle soda machine, and there was a deli case for the meats. I think they also served lunches. That's fun that we were just talking about Arby's. We sure were. The area is sparsely populated. Very few residences were and are contained along this stretch of road. There were some cabins for rent down the highway apiece, and nearby Triangle Lake provided the chance to catch trout and bluegill. The general store and service station would cash payroll checks for local logging workers, accept mail to be collected by the postmaster, and fill fuel tanks for motorists from its standard oil-branded pumps. It was a residence as well as a business. Its owners occupied a small, two- or three-room living space attached to the store. News out of Greenleaf tended toward the mundane, yet informative, and a little nosy to boot. Articles detailed everything from residents' out-of-town visitors and lists of party guests, to business trips, farmers taking losses on hogs, kids doing mischief, courthouse weddings, sick relatives, and of course, births and deaths. In 1945, a friend of a woman named Cora Rogers was in town visiting. This was two months after Cora's husband, Charles, died. The friend, Margaret Frisbee, was likely there to check on the well-being of her newly widowed friend. In early April of 1946, a short article titled Greenleaf Notes details a trip Cora Rogers took to visit an ill sister in Portland. Like I said, mundane, nosy news items.
1: It does still shock me to this day when I'm doing research, and it's an older paper, and not even that old, like the 40s and 50s, and people are like... Full on. Here's your address. Oh, yeah. Here's how. Oh, these people are leaving town. They did that at uh, this address. Don't go rob them or anything. They
0: put addresses up until like the 90s. And even yeah. once in a while, I still find them in there in recent. Times. It is wild. The stuff that they thought was news. Yeah. Even the, they'll put
2: like the, the the suspect in a murder. They'll put their their address yeah. once they're arrested.
0: It's, <laughs> it's really yeah. kind of cruel.
2: <laughs> yeah. Knock at your door like, hello, I heard you were in jail for a murder. <laughs>
0: Great for us, though, for our blog. That's true. Very (laughs) convenient for research. As well as that map on our website. That's right.
2: Thank you, the greatest generation.
0: (laughs) Snoopy-ass
1: bitches.
2: (laughs) It rained the night of Saturday, September 14th, 1946. But that didn't matter to Marion Wheeler, elderly postmaster of Greenleaf and the post office in Blatchley. He lived just east of the Greenleaf Market, and had seen the lights go out inside the store, which he found odd. The store was usually kept open until nine, and it was just past seven. So Wheeler left his house under the pretense of buying candy in order to check in on Cora. He'd confirm his neighbor was well, and in the process score a nice bag of butterscotch discs, cherry sours, or even some dreaded black licorice. He reached the store, knocked, and rang the buzzer, but the lights were out, and Cora did not answer so he returned home, candyless. A truck driver named Chester Johnson stopped by the store between 8.45 and 9.15 p.m. to drop off a case of empty soda bottles. I imagine for the, the deposit on them? Yeah. Something like that? He too knocked and rang the door buzzer to no answer and said the only light he could see inside was the one over the store's deli case. The night was a lonely time. Her husband, Charles, had died the previous year, and Cora carried on running the Greenleaf Market in his stead she lived alone. Cora was known in the surrounding community to be likable, but business-minded and not exactly friendly. As a single woman and a widow, she likely had to display that side to the public so she would be taken seriously as the sole owner of the establishment. By the time the rain began, the killer had already been under the cover of lush greenery, tucked away in a jungle spot across the road from the service station and market for hours. Rain dripped off the short brim of his hat, and he felt invisible as he hunkered down, observing the neat, serious-looking woman going about her end of business day duties. From the hilly vantage, his view through the big front windows was clear. He ate bread and sliced meat while he waited. Police later found fifteen cigarette butts ground into the hiding spot's dirt. The man observed her for hours at least. Police believed the killer had been watching Cora since the previous night. The sun set around six thirty that evening. When it was fully dark, The killer pulled himself through the foliage and crossed the road. No one heard the crime take place. It was a blitz attack. The man struck her repeatedly and strangled her with weapons of opportunity, whatever he could grab. Cora's body laid on the floor behind the soda counter all night, soaking in a pool of blood. The next morning, Greenleaf neighbor Annie Wilcutt was the first customer at the front door. She was disturbed that the market hadn't opened up for the day and doubly so after receiving no answer to her knocks and door buzzes. A local, George Krauser, and a friend named E.M. Lindsay soon appeared at the store to buy fishing licenses. Annie approached them, alarmed, telling them, something has happened at the store. Krauser and Lindsay entered through the unlocked front door. A trail of blood led them behind the counter, where they found the body. George Krauser immediately called the state police to report that someone had been beaten to death. Cora's murderer wound up with a 14-hour head start on the burgeoning investigation. Police discovered the killer had watched the market's owner go about her work from the spot directly across the highway. They found remnants of sliced meat, as well as the tape and paper it was packaged in. I also, I never really thought about there being, like, deli meat in the 40s. I don't know why, but there was.
1: There sure was. It's pretty cool. I love delis.
2: Well, refrigeration had become Mm. standard.
1: Yeah. Standard.
2: And that's why we have Arby's today. Thank God. The provisions had been purchased at a store in Walton, to the south of Greenleaf. I believe the man left Walton a day or so before the murder and headed north along nearby Nelson Mountain Road, which connected U.S. Route 28, where Walton is, to Highway 36 in Greenleaf. For fans of road trivia, U.S. Route 28 is now a portion of Oregon Route 126.
0: Ooh,
1: fun road trivia.
2: I just put that in there because it, it changed over time and I do not want people, anyone to gmail us and be like, ah, those Tell highway's information's... Are, yeah, till the gene of the highway <laughs> patrol. <laughs> the highway information patrol. <laughs> the unknown subject likely exited the rough mountain road through the Lake Creek-covered bridge, turning right at the highway's T-junction and reaching the Greenleaf Market in less than a mile. Assessing the body, police found that Cora hadn't only been bludgeoned, in addition to her crushed skull, she'd also been garroted with several strands of bailing wire after being dragged feet first behind the counter. The killer stamped bloody footprints across the floor, and it appeared he'd washed his hands in the sink. Unfortunately, though, Cora's, quote, little dog had tracked about and ruined the Slayer's tracks for evidence.
1: Of all the sentences in the show to start with, unfortunately, the dog, at least it was just
0: that. That's
1: right. I mean, that sucks, but... At least the dogs are little
0: dogs, I swear.
1: (laughs) They're terrible. Especially at a crime scene.
2: The attack began near the front of the store and progressed inside. Cora's right ring finger was broken, and a handful of white hair, Cora's color, was found on the floor. A heavy fire poker and a woodcutter's wedge were collected as possible murder weapons. At autopsy, though, it was determined a hatchet or cleaver type tool had been the murder weapon. On the death certificate, the immediate cause of death is listed as, quote, petechial hemorrhage, haggis in medulla and pons due to multiple skull fractures, and pulmonary edema and lung congestion due to strangulation.
1: I've never heard of haggis.
2: Yeah, the, ha- yeah, the haggis, I don't know what that was, but the medulla and pons is like the brain stem. Oh, so it's okay. just like, yeah, blows to the head, fractures. and yeah. gotcha. Robbery was the obvious motive, and a compulsion to kill was apparent as well. The cash register was broken open on the floor and mostly emptied, yet the killer left at least $800 in cash, which Cora kept at the Coke bar and in a bedroom drawer. Quote, several envelopes containing money, one holding $55 in cash, were found scattered on the floor of the store. Investigators believed the killer may have been scared away from the scene when neighbor and postmaster Marion Wheeler rang at Cora's door in his quest for candy and to make sure she was okay. Everyone around knew Cora kept cash on hand. There were rumors she sometimes had as much as $2,000 in the store. Loggers would come in to cash their checks, and she would always go to her living rooms to grab the money. Anyone who had seen her doing this, or had even heard of it, was a suspect with a motive. Constructed in 1931, Greenleaf Market was first operated by married couple C.H. Cheney and unnamed wife in 1936. In 1940, it was sold to brothers Henry and Joe Sloddick from Medford, who did a quick turnaround, selling it to Charles and Cora Rogers in 1941. They'd moved to Greenleaf that year. Cora M. Rogers was 58 at the time of her murder. She was born November 5, 1888, in Chicago. In 1908, Cora lived in Denver, Colorado, where she worked as a clerk for the C.F. Adams Company which was a large chain of department stores, or credit clothiers, as they used to be called. This is where her father was also employed as a manager.
1: So she's got shopkeeping in her blood.
2: She's been working her whole life. She and her family moved to Oregon in 1916, and Cora married Charles S. Rogers of Minnesota on June 23, 1917, in King, Washington. A year and a half later, Cora and Charles had a daughter they named Susan. Charles Rogers worked for many years in the lumber manufacturing business. After 12 years at the Western Oregon Lumber Company in Portland, Charles accepted an accounting position for the Walters-Bushong Lumber Company in Eugene. In March of 1932, Charles, Cora, and daughter Susan moved there from Portland. They lived at 1188 Tyler Street in an adorable house with a small sloping front lawn and a surrounding neighborhood of equally charming homes. After the Rogers' 1941 purchase, the couple lived at and ran Greenleaf Market together until April 19, 1945, when Charles died of kidney and heart failure. Cora's shaky signature on Charles' death certificate looks like anguish in written form. After Cora's death, Glenn Wilson, formerly of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, was brought in as a special deputy to examine fingerprints on Cora Rogers' body. It had been his specialty as an investigator, yet no suspects emerged from his methods. State police patrolled by airplane the areas where the suspect had been sighted. He was not spotted, and those living in the vicinity began to arm themselves with guns and assorted weapons. Truck driver Courtney Smith, his helper Shorty Bell, and Coastal Florence resident Gregory Burbach were the last aside from her killer to see Cora Rogers alive. They were all at the store around 7 that night and said she seemed in good spirits. Mr. and Mrs. Roy Mackinson drove by the store a bit after 7 p.m. the night of the murder. They were going to stop for fuel, but kept on motoring when they saw the light over the gas pump was switched off. As they passed, they could see a man standing at the cash register. A few minutes later, another couple, the Smiths, drove past the store. Its lights were now out, and they could see the shape of a man framed in the light from the attached home's living rooms. Four days after the murder, State Police Sergeant Vern Hill gave a description assembled from witness statements from the time surrounding the crime.
1: So basically, they were witnessing either the attack or the person that had done it.
2: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. In, in, just in the aftermath of it, when I, I believe when they were going through. Yeah. When they were robbing, doing the robbery part. And right Ooh. before uh, they, they were possibly scared away by, uh, oh, by the postmaster that, kind of, mm-hmm. that showed up. Yeah. Fifty years old, short and stocky with gray hair, low voice without accent. Full, round, wrinkled face And slightly protruding eyes Short, stubby hands His skin appears tanned or dirty When walking, he holds his shoulders well back And he walks fast Suspect was wearing old, dirty, tannish-gray slouch hat Worn well down over his eyes Wearing dirty, dark-gray suit coat Tight about the shoulders And too long in body and sleeves With trousers darker than the coat His clothing is wrinkled and baggy maybe carrying a bedroll tied with string sometimes carries this roll over his shoulder on a stick he may smoke Philip Morris cigarettes
1: with mother's day around the corner are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code Rain at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code Rain for 10% off today.
0: Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I wanna try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today.
1: That's a pretty impressive description, including the low voice, no accent.
2: Well yeah, there there were uh, people who saw him and people he interacted with, which I'll get into in a minute, oh, uh, kind of in that area. Okay. The man was last seen 4 miles east of Triangle Lake 2 days after the murder. His meal order from another outpost along the coast range included hamburgers, pie a la mode, milkshakes, and beer. And that detail I thought led me to believe that this that this guy is maybe the killer because he was suddenly like He was like a, you know, a a hobo, essentially. Oh, and then then suddenly got like a real nice meal. Mm -hmm. Three days after the crime, September 17th, the Eugene guard wrote, quote, among the theories being pursued is one to the effect that the murderer may have been something of a screwball type. An article from September 20th says the man was probably traveling on foot at night and ducking out of sight whenever a vehicle passed. This information came from a witness had seen a figure doing so along the road as they drove by. After receiving news of Cora Rogers' death, her two daughters and two of her sisters traveled to Eugene to begin funeral arrangements. Her body was sent to Crest Abbey Crematorium in Salem, Oregon, and disintegrated into bone fragments and ash on September 25, 1946. She had no known enemies. By October, the case was cold and has been ever since. Lane County Sheriff C.A. Swartz said as much to the newspapers. Quote, At least one man works on this case every day. We haven't given up, and we don't intend to give up. They eventually gave up. In November, six weeks after the murder, and with little to further the investigation, the Lane County Court offered a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Cora Rogers' killer. Again, nothing came from the effort. But the case was not without its leads. December 10, 1946, an elderly lady in Eureka, California, was killed in a manner strikingly similar to the Greenleaf murder. Pearl Martin was, quote, hit over the head with a hatchet in the living room, then dragged to the basement and struck repeatedly. The death weapon has not been found. She ran a successful dry-cleaning business with her husband and was working alone at the time she was murdered and robbed of, quote, $300, considerable valuable jewelry, and two small-caliber pistols. No clear connection could be made between this and the Cora Rogers killing. The death of Pearl Martin remains unsolved.
1: And that was Northern California, you said?
2: Yeah, Eureka, I think. Oh, yeah, Eureka's in Humboldt. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Right down the five.
2: Yeah, proximity and the method. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty similar. In November 1948, Cecil Raymond Kozad, a commercial photographer, became a possible suspect in Cora's murder. This was after he walked into a Jacksonville, Florida, police station sobbing and then confessed to killing his first wife in Decatur, Illinois, all the way back in 1925. The guilt was destroying him, which is nice. Nineteen-year-old Grace Kozad died in hospital on September 17, 1925, succumbing to gasoline burns that covered her entire body. She'd been cleaning a pair of pants on an ironing board and using a pan of gasoline to spot clean and degrease them. Unbelievable as it may seem, gasoline was, quote, the primary dry-cleaning solvent used in the early 1900s. This was an everyday kind of activity, but Grace had placed the pan too near to the gas stove, which was lighted. The fuel ignited on contact with the stove and splashed Grace with liquid flames. Her husband, Cecil, was upstairs at the time of the accident. He pounded down the stairs and tried to smother the fire with his own body to no avail. He broke a window to cry for help from neighbors, who ran over and were able to extinguish the flame's swarming grace. Her clothing and hair were burned away, and her face was beyond recognition. She died two hours later. Cecil was burned as well, but not badly. After an inquest, the death was ruled accidental.
1: Maybe that also helped chores be more enjoyable? Gas fumes? Yeah. Couldn't hurt. Like it sucks that I have to do this all day, so might as well have some gas fumes.
2: Yeah, this morning I found a a video. I can't. Oh, it was on like the the Internet Archive, you know that mm-hmm. great website. And it was a, a film from 1941, an educational film. It was called More Dangerous Than Dynamite, and it was about not using gasoline like inside the home for things because <laughs> it was like showed her this woman with just a big old bucket of gas, just like dunking jeans in it. <sighs> And then, like that she's, crazy. and then she takes her hands out, and the kids come into the kitchen where she's working, and she like ushers them out, but she does so by like putting her hands on their body, you know, on their. So clothes. they're all
1: just covered, in gas. Everyone's covered and everyone's and everyone's smoking. Gas. Yes.
2: Oh it's, my god! So I think it was like it happened all the time, and they were like, "Please stop doing this." <gasps> and weird too that that the well, I'm just now realizing that this has to do with dry cleaning, and then the murder of Pearl Martin. She worked. She was oh, a dry cleaner. Oh yeah. I don't think there's a connection. It's just
1: maybe you just made one though.
2: Weird. Cecil said in his confession to the 23-year-old crime that he had poured the gasoline on the stove to burn and kill his bride because of jealousy. Kozad was held in Florida while legal proceedings went on in Illinois. On January 13, 1949, a Macon County, Illinois grand jury declined to indict Kozad. He was set free.
1: Even though he admitted it?
2: Yep. I think it was it was too long. There's no real case other than his word. I think it was... just. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. When interviewed about the Cora Rogers murder, Kozad admitted to hitchhiking in Oregon during the period of the murder in Greenleaf. But he passed a lie detector test regarding his involvement. So they said, "Okay, you're good to go, Cease.
1: I wonder, did they think he was possibly a suspect for Cora just because he had been in the area and was now an admitted murderer?
2: Yeah, and I think it's... Well, and then they found out that he had been in the area too. I don't know if they had confirmed uh. that he had worked there, but um
1: just like, oh, he's capable of this with his own wife. I think so. Did it. And
2: it was this was uh he confessed two years after the Cora Rogers murder. So it was like kind of like oh, you know, they were they were kind okay. of near each other, so they were like, you know, let's go talk let's to him. A look. And I think at that point they were like, Let's just try something yeah. to try to f- Find somebody who did this,
1: or may even even if it's just to make it look like steps are. But you know, yes. oh hey, we might have we're questioning someone, so we're really working on it. Yeah, you know,
2: actually, just you saying that is making me think that, that that that's what those other yeah the other people they interviewed probably was like we ha- yeah we have to do something yeah mm. but yeah there was nothing there there was very little to go on. Another man, Albert William Carnes, was also interviewed regarding the murder of Cora Rogers. He was already in prison, so it was easy to get a sit down with him. On June 6, 1952, Albert Carnes went to visit his ex-wife, who'd enacted divorce proceedings while he served a year in the Washington State Reformatory. The owner of the rooming house where they had once lived together, Susan Litchfield, informed Carnes that his ex was no longer staying there. He left disheartened, but returned the next afternoon, finding the 81-year-old at work in the property's woodshed. Albert beat her to death with a hammer he carried over in a suitcase and then mutilated her body with an axe from the shed. Afterwards, he moved inside to wash his hands before stealing $30 from her purse, much like the Greenleaf Market crime. Quote, Carnes became a suspect when a check of Mrs. Litchfield's list of former boarders revealed his name, and he was found to match the description of a man seen in the area on the day of the murder. He was taken into custody on June 15th when he was caught burglarizing a residence there and attacked the housewife with a claw hammer. At first, he denied having been in Salem the day that Mrs. Litchfield was murdered but a desk clerk remembered having registered him and the owner of a chili restaurant remembered having served him. He then confessed that he had killed his former landlady and stated that robbery was his motive. Mm. There was no solid connection between Carnes and the Rogers murder. Records showed he was well over 100 miles away working the day of and the day after Cora was killed. He also worked in nearby Deadwood for a time, but that wasn't until 1950, four years after the murder. In January of 1953, Albert Carnes was executed in the gas chamber at Oregon State Penitentiary. He was only 24 years old and remains the second-to-last person executed by the state of Oregon.
1: And that was for the murder of his landlady?
2: Yes, Susan okay. Litchfield in Salem, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it was to- totally a, just, it's totally not connected to, to Cora Rogers. By 1955, over 135 people had been interviewed by law enforcement and fingerprints found at the scene were compared to over 100 they'd taken or already had on file. Only one latent print found was not readable. It is believed to be one of Cora's. A
0: 1956
2: Eugene Gard article describes the file regarding the unsolved murder of Cora Rogers as, quote, some 500 pages of reports, statements, and letters that represent one of the most baffling murders to confront Oregon law enforcement officers in decades. Time has swallowed up the Greenleaf market, the murder of Cora Rogers, and the man responsible for it. All that remains is the highway.
1: In your now professional opinion, you were saying that you didn't see that her story had been covered kind of anywhere. So you're the expert. Where did you find yourself if you did, being drawn to who you think may have done it, of those men or someone totally different?
2: I don't think it was any of the, the suspects that I talked about. I really feel like it was a logging worker, someone who was like an itinerant worker who kind of moved around where the work was and who, because they weren't a local, they didn't have a home, they didn't have a local bank, they went to the Greenleaf Market to cash their check.
0: So they would have been familiar with her. I think so, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I think it was someone that did that or someone local that knew about that. Which would also make sense
1: for being able to hide in bushes for like 20 hours or whatever. Yeah.
2: So yeah, I think it was a local. Scary.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a sad one. I mean, of course, it's sad in in general. But it's also sad because on one hand, it's great because here you are telling her story and keeping her alive in that sense you know of still sharing that after all these years and then on the other hand knowing that because it's so old it's done like that's that case is never going to get solved yeah I'm, sh- I'm
2: sure that case file that i just talked about that oh 500 it's pages long is gone long gone yeah. yeah
1: oh i've reached out yeah before about like very famous cases and been like oh hey can i get that document they're like we don't have stuff from then it's like, what are you like? How could you possibly burn that and not think, you know, let's just save it for historical purposes or something?
2: Yeah. Especially when it's a murder. Yeah. Or some sort of major crime. Well, yeah. They don't
0: like record of their failure.
1: That is. Yeah. A very that's point. also
0: yeah.
2: true.
1: Yeah. We don't have. Yeah. That doesn't mark against us because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing her story. You're welcome. It's always yeah, a bummer it a, when it's an unsolved. It was
2: fascinating, and, it, and at first, it, I thought maybe there wasn't enough uh, enough detail to fill an episode. But as I went, you know, really getting into into those other suspects was fascinating. Mm-hmm. That guy Carnes, I'd never heard of, and I didn't know yeah. that he he'd been executed. And then that guy Cozad, who like definitely killed his wife, and then in the in that first article that I saw from 1958, it referenced him as. Having killed several women and Jeez. said that he was in jail under a death sentence, which I found to be not true. But I feel like he probably did some other ones.
1: It's also very strange that didn't you say it was sometime after his wife had died from the burns? 23 years. Oh, he waited 23 years yeah. to... Yeah, he,
2: she
0: oh, I died thought in... it was a couple... I misheard no, that. She died in
2: 1925, or
0: like, he, he killed her. He didn't have man. to say anything. No. Yeah, he was just
2: And he was seriously, I believe he was in Florida. He's, I think he was on a road trip to Miami, and the guilt overcame him, and he just pulled over in Jacksonville and was like,
0: I killed my wife! Well, it makes you wonder, wow. why was the guilt getting at him after 23 years? Oh, Did he do yeah. it again? Uh-huh. That's, yeah, that's
2: interesting, too. If he, if oh, he... if
0: I had been stopped, I wouldn't
1: be still killing people and I don't want to mm-hmm. keep killing people, but I got away with it, so I did. Like
0: that I feel like is a cry for help that we mm-hmm. hear happen, happen regularly, and then people dismiss it. Like, yeah. And then he happen. got the
1: perfect thing. He's like, oh, I got that guilt off my conscience and everyone knows I did it and I don't have to go to prison. It's a win win. Yeah,
2: the legal system was like, thanks for thanks for stopping in and letting us know. That's
1: <laughs> we'll make a note in the cool file. Idea.
0: That we'll get rid of Thanks Cecil. That will Yeah, exactly. We'll mark that down and throw it in the incinerator. Thank you. We did a girls camping trip out there and three of the girls believe they saw a UFO on their on their way there. Like, it's a good story. Like a light was following them for a couple of miles and they started getting freaked out and then disappeared. Spooky. Spooky.
2: (laughs) Wait, let's do that again so I can say it too.
0: (laughs) Spooky.
2: Spooky. Spooky. (laughs) Spooky.
0: That's it. (laughs) Bye-bye.
2: It's big TV. It's it's little TV, but it's big TV compared to phone TV. That's,
1: well, that's a fact right there. Mm -hmm. Do I sound okay? Sound great. I love you. Just wanted to let you know my resume has updated. <laughs> and you if you need guys need
0: someone in the chopper. Who can do live casts from the chopper. How about true crime chopper time?
2: <laughs> Those are dangerous, though, helicopters. True story.
0: That's uh, okay. I don't plan to live long. <laughs> oh, my God. Someone's in the dumps. <laughs> <laughs> my Lord. I don't. What
1: happened, a, Emily? I'm going to stay in the car. I Was it a bad week?
0: I just don't like my job.
2: The general store and service station would cosh ca- payroll chocks. <laughs> but that didn't matter to Marion Wheeler. Elderly.
0: My mole on my arm just scared me. I thought it was a spider. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> I need to get it removed.
2: They call that a non sequitur.
0: Are you okay? Just frightened me a little bit. Is your okay. spider
2: okay? <laughs> Cora's husband, Charles, had died the
1: previous year.
0: Wait. Charles?
1: Charles and charred?
0: Charles in charge of (laughs) our days and our nights
1: Love that show
2: As well as the tape and paper (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think I need to get rid of the the word wrapping The killer stamped bloody footprints across the The killer stamped bloody footprints across the The killer stamped bloody footprints across the linoleum floor. Oh boy. (laughs) I'm gonna say floor. By linoleum. (laughs) You son of a bitch. I think the letter L is my is one of is my weak one of my weak letters. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. so. It gets the L gets stuck in my mouth. Like that. Let's see what other letters I'm bad at. (laughs) Oops. That was, was my elbow again on the um, arm, the chair of the arm and sure. then I couldn't recreate it, so I guess yes, I did fart. On the death... Sh- <laughs> I think we got soft seas as a problem too. <laughs> Can I finish? Certain I'm going to fuck up immediately. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Charles accepted an accounting position for the Walters Bushong Lumber Company in Eugene. <laughs> Bush. Um. Can't have Bush near food.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I love that movie. <laughs> I fucking love that movie. What movie? It's the movie where they say that when it's, oh, God, what's it called? They're at a strip club. Oh, and we they... only knew that as your quote. Oh, oh, my God. From um, the Alaskan Dash's Bush, Qu- Bush the Alask- Company Alask- episode. Yeah, Alaskan Bush Company. Oh, my Bush God. Company. it's Well, it's from a movie. That's yeah, so funny. Please <laughs> I thought find you were out. Quoting. That's hilarious. I can't remember, but it's so good. Brad Renfro's in it, and they go to a strip club because they have good steak, and then they get mad because the city bans having pubic hair with steak. <laughs>
2: Brad Renfro? (laughs) I don't know this movie. Oh, my God. Let me find it. Please do. I'll keep reading while you do that. Wow. So
0: good. (laughs) I'm starting to question if it is even Brad Renfro because I cannot find this movie. But it's so funny. I'm, like, trying to Google search all the things I remember and nothing is coming up.
2: Hmm. Is it Tomcats?
0: (sighs) No. It was a very obscure, like, almost like an indie movie comedy
2: and you sir you, you put in a movie scene where you can't eat yep, steak near I bush. I sure
0: did. <laughs> Are you certain that you didn't
1: experience this? Make it up I or dream positive it? Or... I've seen
0: this movie several times, and okay. it will come to me eventually. The name will come to I me. I can't
2: wait. Is it Varsity Blues? No, but I love
1: that movie. There's no bush in that one. <laughs> Just banana butt. Banana butt. Oh no, Varsity Blues has whipped cream. Oh, that is that.
2: Oh, a uh, teen movie has. Oh no, McGruber has celery butt. <laughs> yeah. My bad.
1: And not another teen movie as Chris Evans mm-hmm. with a banana up his butt.
2: In the living fucking L.
1: The lounge. Oh no, that's an L. Ah. ah.
2: And we're able to extinguish. Extinguish.
1: Now you're adding L's.
2: Where's my fucking clicker? There we go.
0: Blame that clicker. <laughs> Little crutch is what it is. <gasps> no, we have all grown to love it. Oh, I thought you called me a crotch. No. <laughs> <laughs> She's always calling people crotches.
1: You crotch.
0: <laughs> you that's son a of a, a crotch. That's a really
1: fun uh,
0: thing to call someone because <laughs> it's like offensive, but also not. I, I per- like crotch goblin. I prefer oh, crotch yeah. meat. Ew. See? <laughs> F off, crotch meat. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> roast beef, crotch, roast beef.
1: <laughs> crotch beef. You're being a real crotch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's like good. not quite mean, but yeah, mean. yeah, but like also it. like, ooh, I don't want to be kind called of gross. a crotch. <laughs> <laughs> like that's all you add up to and is that's... somebody's crotch.
1: <laughs> and that's kind of like such a nano word. <laughs> oh, it fell in your crotch, honey.
2: I've never been so disgusted by the word crotch before. <laughs> it's just
1: like
0: the repetitive, holy moly. Classic.
1: Get on with it, Crotch. (laughs) (laughs) That's my name, Crotch McCullough. (laughs) Crotchua.
0: (laughs) Crotchua McCullough.
2: Gave myself a horrible nickname (laughs) that will definitely stick.
0: (laughs) I'm dead.
1: I'm dead. Crotchua McCullough. It's... It's. She gives you the cutest name for some reason forever, <laughs> Baby Tiger. And then
0: Crouchula. and then I'll just be
1: like, Crotch McCullough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And check my balls.